Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. Real herbs, real life, real easy. Show number three, brought to you by thepracticalherbalist.com. Sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyor of high-quality, organic bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose-leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. Today's topic is the elder tree. Its medicine is surrounded by myth, some of which is rooted in fact, and some of which is pure fantasy. On this show, we'll talk a little about the mythic properties of elder, how it protects boundaries, physically and spiritually, and they go on to cover the modern-day myths perpetuated in a variety of sources online and in print. We'll also cover practical tips on using elderberry and flower as well as growing elder. Later in the show, we'll have Herbalism 101 and Herbs in the News. Now, here are your hosts from practicalherbalist.com, Candace Hunter and Sue Sierra Lupe. Hi, I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sue Sierra Lupe, and welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. So today, Sue, I want to talk about the many myths of elderberry. There are so many out there. It's, it is interesting how many fallacies float around about elderberry, and there's so much research about elderberry out there. So where yes. do these stories come from? I'm always curious about that. I don't even know, but I know there are a lot. There's a lot of myths that are really good and interesting, like the myths of folklore, the elder mother who can help you know, make changes, help you fix things and make changes in your life, who can help with spiritual work, all of that stuff. That's great. Those mm-hmm. are wonderful myths. They're interesting. And elder as a gateway protector is actually really a sensible myth because when it comes down to it, the way that elderberry and elderflowers work as medicine in our bodies is to strengthen our cell walls, mm-hmm. therefore strengthening our barriers. I our sometimes numbers. look at myths around these plants as doctrine of signatures style which can apply more than the actual doctrine of signatures, but these myths give us stories and guidance about the plant that should help us fortify ourselves in many different levels, not just physical. Exactly. And that's one However, of the things that's one of the things I love about elders that many of the myths out there that come from folklore actually are really, really healthful and wonderful. Yes. But then there's the crazy myths, like the idea that Elderberry, if it's not Sambucus nigra, it's deadly poisonous. Yes, indeed. I have heard that before, and that is not true. That is definitely not true. There are three different types of elderberry. The red elderberry, the black elderberry, and blue-black elderberry, sometimes called blue elderberry. The ones that we most commonly eat and the ones that we have the most research about, and so this is the one that we consider to be the medicinal elderberry is the Sambucus nigra, which is the the black elderberry. But that doesn't mean that everything else is poisonous. Well, and there's two different black elderberries, and they are very, very similar in their constituent makeup, and that's the North American and the European. And mm-hmm. they're almost the same tree, but one grows in North America and the other one grows in Europe. The European one's flowers are reputed to be really smelly and musky and very much like fly pollinated kind of flowers Mm -hmm. and the north american variety is much more sweet and floral it's got honey flavored yeah Yeah. so there's a small difference there but medicinally there the both trees work the same the berries work the same the european one is the nigra and the american one north american one is candensis Mm -hmm. But other than that, you know, they're both really black elderberry. They're so similar, in fact, that botanists keep arguing about whether the canadensis is a subspecies or if it's its own species or they just keep changing their mind about that. And that's the way science is. And I respect that. But once in a while, I kind of chuckle. Yeah. (laughs) 
As an herbalist, it's black elderberry. It's black elderberry. You call it what you want. I'm just going to keep keep reading the literature, enjoying it, and keep using it as fabulous medicine. Right. And the blue elderberry, the blue-black one, that's Sambuca cerilla. Mm-hmm. I hope I said that right. Anyway, that one is got virtually the same medicinal qualities as the black elderberry yes. as well. That's right. And it grows all over the place. So those those three you can use safely. Yes, and the flowers from all of them, from right. all of the elder, all elderflower can be used in respiratory formulas. Doesn't matter. You right. can you have to process things a little bit differently when it comes to fruit, but as far as flower. Elderflower is elderflower. Right, exactly. And then the red ones, they have many of the same properties. What they don't do well is be consumed raw. They've got more of the glycosides in them that are bad. Yeah. You know, and what's up with that? I mean, I've seen I've seen sources both in print and online that say everything from red elderberry is highly toxic to almost deadly to red elderberry will give you a stomach upset when eaten raw. I've seen such a wide variety. So what what is it that really makes red elderberry or any of the other parts of the all of the elderberry family toxic? Well, one of the things that elderberry produces in order to defend itself is cyanogenic glycosides, and those are more prominent in the stems and the leaves. They're also in the unripe berries, and you see a more predominance of it in the red elder right. berries as opposed to the black or the blue-black elderberries. It's got a very bitter, astringent taste. It's not pleasant to eat at all. And it's in the seed mm-hmm. itself, small amounts. Just There's a lot of different things that seeds have from different plants in order to make sure that birds can't digest them, so they just eat the fruit, and then when it passes through their digestive tracts, it will protect itself and just spread the seed and more plants. It's one of the fabulous things that plants do. However, that doesn't mean it's going to kill you. And there have been some people that have said, you know, I've had two elderberries and it made me extremely sick. What you and I have discussed before is, are you sure you were eating elderberries? (laughs) I mean, perhaps their palate is extremely delicate. In that case, it's maybe not the elderberry. Maybe it's just a a delicate palate, which is acceptable. I understand that and know yourself. But that doesn't mean that these plants are toxic and they're trying to kill you. Right. That's another thing that I notice when I give plant walks is, People look at these plants in fear initially. Well, that one's dangerous. That one's dangerous. Like, wait a minute. The dangerous part of this walk is the person walking with me. Ignorance is dangerous. If you don't understand these plants, they are in and of themselves just plants. It's the way that you apply them that makes them positive in your life or negative in your life. They're just plants trying to live. Right. And in the case of elderberry, it's important to understand what it, with the toxicity, what that really means. In this case, the glycosides, the cyanogenic, I know, I never pronounce, I just call them glycosides, but That's okay. they break cyanogenic down. glycosides. Yes, the cyanogenic glycosides break down during digestion and produce cyanide in the system. Yes. That's why they're dangerous. And cyanide is not fat soluble. Right. But the important part, or the, the really good part, is that if you cook them or dry them mm-hmm. or turn them into an infusion, the, they break down just the same. But the cyanide gas vanishes into the air and right. not into your system, so then at that point you can eat them. Right. Similar to nettle, we all know nettle as being a, a hefty stinger. It'll leave 
rashes on people if they get too much of it on them. However, that's water soluble. So when you dry it or you cook it or the same thing we're doing with the elderberry, that formic acid disappears and it's not a problem anymore. It's a boon to our system rather than a bane. Exactly. So when I hear people or we see the sources that say that red elderberry is deadly dangerous and all, I just laugh because, you know, the Native Americans of this area of the Pacific Northwest use red elderberry extensively as food and medicine for, you know, centuries yep. before we decided to be scared of it. And they didn't die off. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's interesting that you use the phrase gateway when you're referring to elderberry because it really truly in the body system, it does work as a gateway. And H1N1, there's a study on that one, and the H1N1 virus comes through the bloodstream and hangs out and then, and they kind of look like these little porcupines. They're those the viruses. So they sit there and they wait for the body's defenses to wear down, and then they uh, duplicate in the cell. Elderberry does is it has a constituent that staves it off. It does not allow the elderberry to stay. Or sorry, it does not allow the H1N1 virus to stay in the system. It it floods that H1N1 virus out of the system. So truly, it is a gateway. Right. It, it's a guardian yeah. of those gateways. So Right. I love how that, I mean, that's one of my favorite aspects of elders, that it does, it functions on so many levels that way. Yeah. And that's just one of the that's many viruses. We always think yeah. of elderberry as something that's used for bronchial and flus and colds and fevers. But that one has a lot of press because it's a, it's a killer it, right. it can come in. It's not necessarily a death sentence if you get H1N1. If you can get treatment ahead of time and you have a good immune system, then you know you'll you will come through it. However, it is pretty deadly when it gets into the elderly population or small children. We last year unfortunately suffered a death in Eugene from H1N1, and it was it was quite a scare for our tiny little community. Right. Right. So we definitely is H1N1 the same thing as swine flu? I or believe it's different? called that. Yeah. yeah <laughs> was, flu. Sorry, I get used to using the certain terms, and I forget about the colloquialism. Sorry. That's all right. I, I wanted to make sure that I got that right because I remember reading that H1 or that swine flu was one of the ones that elderberry can protect against. Yes. So. Yeah. And many of the flu viruses. Uh, I'm not going to say every single one because flu right. viruses are in and of itself complex, but many of the flu viruses that have been studied. Elderberry is, is championing those causes. That's nice. Yeah, and That's it's nice. so simple to make an elderberry syrup, for example. You know, you just, I like to take the, the dried elderberry and then soak them and put them on the stove and slowly heat it up and then later add my honey to it when I feel like it's, it's well, for one thing, it's been strained because you don't want to have to strain out dried elderberries or any kind of fruit once the honey's in there. Yes, I've made that mistake, and it's not pretty. It's not pretty. <laughs> and I will add a little bit of alcohol to it that helps uh, rehydrate. You know, it opens it up a little bit right. more. And then the al- alcohol is, is uh, cooked off. Right. And then I'll add my honey. Or sometimes I add glycerin. It depends on what I've got. Right. And I have, myself, I've used a little bit of elderberry tincture as the preservative aspect for syrups as well. Even yeah. If it is an elderberry or elderflower syrup, I might add a little bit of tincture, like 20%. Right. To my so recipe it just starts, you can just start seeing the steam of the alcohol come off. Right. And you can certainly smell it. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll even add it after I'm done just to make sure that my syrup will last so I can make a whole lot of it at once, especially if I'm the one who's sick. 
and I'm the one who has to make my own medicine, mm-hmm. which does sometimes happen in my family. Sure. Mine Everybody too. Else, everyone else is busy, so I'll If wait. I'm smart enough to treat myself, yes. ha ha, not likely, <laughs> but we can but, uh, dream. <laughs> but that's when I'll, I'll, I'll make a ridiculous amount. Like I'll make a quart of syrup mm-hmm. that I know is going to last me for a week and a half. Mm-hmm. which is probably what I'm going to need it to last me for. So I'll add the elderberry tincture at, you know, elderberry or elderflower tinctures at like a 20% of the final volume yeah. so that it will last in the refrigerator, but it'll last mm-hmm. without getting moldy or... And that's fermenting. one of those things you have to think ahead because elderflower mm-hmm. is blooming months ahead of time. Right. Months ahead of time. So right. you've got to collect those and either dry them. Or I know some people like to freeze their elderflower so they're using it fresh. But drying is so much easier. It right. dries up so quickly. So And medicinally, the dried flowers work just as well as oh, the yes. fresh flowers. Absolutely. So, you know, you can buy them. I mean, you can buy elderflowers as well, which mm-hmm. I've definitely done. Yep. Let someone else do the work. Yeah. Whatever you've got, that's... That's what you got, and that's right. what you work with, most right. definitely. And it does preserve if you put it in the freezer and give it tons of headspace, but not for very long. I, I know some people that also can their syrups just as they would any other type of syrup, and that's a good way to preserve it. I think that the trick there is is to make sure it's in a smaller container, canned right. and not in a big quart jar. Right. Because it yeah. won't get warm enough in the center, and then you might get food poisoning. Right, or if you're going to can it, you'd probably want to pressure can it at 10 pounds pressure for at least 25 minutes. Correct. That's typically most of the low acid foods. That's how you, what you can them at. Mm-hmm. For the elderflower, that one also, that one's the one that I use mostly for respiratory illnesses. Mm-hmm. I've used it in steams as well. And oh, yeah. I'll, typically I'll use dried ones because most of the time I don't have access to fresh. But Yeah. Do you I mix that with something? I'll usually use, I'll throw in some elderflowers and maybe some mint, depending on which mint I've got, mm-hmm. depending on whether it's hot. If it's hot out, I'll use spearmint. If it's cold, I'll use peppermint. Um, I've never dried. thrown mint into a steam before. Yarrow, lavender, those are yeah. my go-to Yeah, I'll steams. usually use a mint instead of the, lar- the lavender because I happen to have more, my respiratory system is really sensitive to lavender. Oh. So... If I'm in a place of being sensitive, lavender will cause hives for me. Oh, that's Whereas not if I good. Do, but the mints don't, as long as I don't use them too many times. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll do a steam with elderflower with one of the mints, and then I'll do, and maybe add some yarrow in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next time I do the steam, the next day or later in the day, I'll use the elderflower and I'll use the yarrow, but I'll probably add a few drops of, or probably a drop of tea tree or eucalyptus essential oils. Sure, rosemary would be great in our mm-hmm. area. Rosemary is available all year round. Yeah. So it's a bush. It's supposed to be available all year round, or you're growing it in a really, really cold place. Right. It is, and it, even the dried rosemary actually works pretty well. Mm-hmm. I've used that, and I've used sage as well. Yep. And people in this area that are growing rosemary know how monstrously huge they can get because we have so yes. much water. Right. And they're yeah. native to the Mediterranean. Sage would be another great thing to throw in there. Another right. thing that usually if it dies in this area, it's because it's gotten too much water. Right. So it rots out. Right. Even back freezes. in the Midwest when I lived there, I couldn't get rosemary to grow, you know, come back year after year. But the sage would grow year after year. I mean, it would die down to the ground. So wow. I have a small sage every year because we got really cold winters there. Yeah, it's Minnesota, that's true. You know. Yeah. But but it would grow back up. Sage would always return. Yeah, and it's a good one for 
respiratory problems. So it pairs well with the elderflower. Our rosemary, we have to prune twice a year, or oh, it just wow. gets enormous. And the the trunk of the rosemary is uh, you could you can't even put your hand around it. It's pretty That's darn huge. big. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that old. I guess it's approximately fifteen years old. That's what I think of it. It does well. Sounds Mediterranean to me. Yep, it's against the side of the house, the west side, so it gets a lot of light. We don't water it at all because it's right there by the driveway. It gets nicely ignored, and it gets huge. It loves to be ignored. <laughs> yep. If it gets too pampered, if rosemary or plants like that are in a soft soil, then they can get too soft and they won't survive winters because there's too much moisture in their stems. Sure, makes sense. And I think that for a elderberry, they do really well with the good compost on top because they have a very, sh- a very shallow. They do have a root shallow system. Root system all in all, so yeah. they need a good compost top dressing, or you can leave the leaves as they, as they drop, right, to make sure that they get a lot of nutrition. All of those riparian plants, they really go through minerals and and all of the lovely things that are in soil very rapidly so right. they're right on top <laughs> right right and if they get too low in minerals they won't flower and fruit right correct or they'll look a little droopy right yeah. there's a specific is it phosphorus that's important mm-hmm. to put in to make sure that they have that every year if you want yeah. fruit particularly for southern growing elderberry up here we don't seem to have a problem with that we have more of a problem with low calcium or uh, low magnesium up here because we have so much water in it, soft water. So up here it would be wise, or in the Pacific Northwest it would be wise to grow a couple big old comfrey plants and turn those into compost tea. Mm-hmm. Maybe nettle if you have access to it, throw that down yeah. and feed your elder with that each year. Yep. And once the elder is established, it would be a good ally with compost, because a compost, pardon me, with comfrey because comfrey gets out of control unless it's in a really shaded spot right. and the elderberry could provide that shade for the comfrey right in fact if you plant the two together you might end up in the happy place of being able to just sort of lop down the comfrey leaves every now and then and just let them be where they fall and right as they mulch and decompose in they'll add this nutrients back into the soil for the elder the only danger would be that comfrey can have a very large root and that might crowd out or threaten to crowd out the elderberry shallow root system however elder is so so durable that i think it'll find a way i've never seen it I just have always been fearful that that would happen, but I've, I've always seen it just blow right through any plant. It's it's right, terrific. yeah, and it'll the, like the branches, kind of like mint trees. When the branches of elder hit the ground, they'll grow new roots too. Yes, so it's a similar kind of philosophy when it comes to rooting. Yeah, it's so, easy to propagate that way. Right. So too. if you're worried about your elder not having a wide enough base, take a few of the smaller branches and pin them down. Mm-hmm. under rocks or something so that they'll grow roots and you'll end up with a wider hedge. So for making elder into tincture, I think that most of the time I have done elder in tincture is not from fresh, it's from dried. So right now I will get 
clumps of elder and it's still attached to the stem, it seems like it's even faster to dry it in the oven at extremely low, like 170, mm-hmm. and put it on cookie sheets, keep the stem on there. And once it's dried, and, and oftentimes I have found, depending on the moisture in the air, it's ready for taking off the stem. It's completely dried. By, if I started in the morning, by evening, it's it's ready to process and put it into baggies. Yeah, it's amazing how fast it does dry. I have found that drying it without some kind of airflow or heat, will it'll end up molding really fast. True, and that's the nice thing about keeping it on the stem is right. that you're it's not necessarily touching the yeah, pan. Provides some of air, that right? there is some circulation. It, the clusters are flat. Yes. Generally, they're they're a little clumpy, but they they are generally fairly flat. So part of it is sitting nicely on the cookie sheet, and some of it's kind of elevated. And as long as you've got it, you pull apart some of the stems so that it's not in a wad, but there is some circulation, like you said. It does dry up pretty nicely. And then you've got the luxury of turning it into tincture whenever you please, and it has a variety of mediums that it can use. But I have also frozen it. Yep. I've got some in my freezer right now waiting for drying later or for turning it into syrup right away. Or jamming. Or they jamming. For jams. They're yep. also really good for mead making. Yep. It's wonderful to, to say, oh, you know, I'm going to pull out my elderberry mead because I need to fight off that virus. It's a great excuse for drinking mead. And if you just want to make an elderberry honey, one of the fun ways of doing that is you take all of your dried elderberries and you put it in a jar, put put about an inch worth of them in the jar, then add honey, then add some more dried elderberries, then add honey and more elderberries, and then your final coat of honey, and cinch it up real tight, label it really well, Put dig a hole in your yard, and then put it in, put that jar of elderberry in the hole, put a board over it, and then when you're ready a couple months down the line, you can pull it up, and you're going to have some nice purple honey, just straight nice. elderberry honey. It might even be better than a syrup, actually. It's, it's really thick. Really well it's thick really and thick. Infused. Yeah. yeah, most definitely. Yeah, and I think for folks who live in the northern climates where they use root cellars, they you could just stick it down in your root cellar. Oh yeah, or in your cool basements. That's very true. That might be exactly the way to go. We we you we don't have a root cellar. No, so this area you don't really. You need don't. One. There's too much flooding. But yeah. uh, one of the things to learn about that particular method is do not do what I did, which is find that the the ground had uh, kind of gotten soft so it was closer to the jar and <laughs> say to yourself I will just dig that out because yeah. shovels and glass are not a good combination yeah that sounds like you just gave the earth a whole lot of honey I did yes <laughs> so kind of me oh, yes. thoughtful. so thoughtful and then fortunately there was some swearing involved as well I imagine but I learned my cool. lesson I definitely learned my lesson I thought later perhaps if I surrounded it put it in the earth and then surround it with sand, then it would it would be an extra insulation and easy to pull up when I'm done. But having that wood marker in the garden, you know, I mean, I would go stomping all over. It wouldn't matter. But that piece of wood was my reminder yeah. that's underneath there. Right. Yeah. There's nothing like forgetting to mark the spot and then digging holes everywhere. That's right. To find the spot again. Doing your squirrel impersonation. <laughs> yes. Or buried treasure. Yes. <laughs> so one of the myths that they've had or that we've I've heard of is that people used to use elder branches to make um, woodwind instruments, flutes, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, They did it. It's supposed to help 
make you, or it's supposed to produce the music that makes the fairies the happiest. Oh. In other words, it's a good way to connect to the spirit world. And it's one of those things that sounds great, and I've even seen people write instructions for doing this, which is great. And they never seem to say, they never seem to include the note that you really have to make sure you use the branches, only the branches elders already dropped and have been seasoned, because those are the ones that have dried out enough. Right. So that they're They're not not toxic. toxic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's another one of those, well, you know, you want to cross into the spirit world permanently, use the green wood. But if you really want to stay living then don't use the green wood don't ever cut branches from the elder which is another one of the myths is that you're never ever supposed to cut branches from the elder tree because it's it'll never grow back right well no that's yeah they say sometimes they say i'll never grow back but they also say it's dangerous it'll bring bad juju on your head oh interesting bad thing right and in truth i don't personally think i would cut an elder's branches without you know telling it and and thinking it and all of that first but i would never use those cut branches for making things i'd let them dry out thoroughly before i consider making anything with them yeah very true well i've heard people say that once they have cut the branches for the fruit then they they would never ever get fruit from those branches again which i i tend to question just because my experience tells me differently but the new branches come up from that shallow rootstock all the time. So right. even if that there is some validity to that myth, it's irrelevant because it's such a vigorous plant. You're going to have far more accessible fruit from the subsequent branches of the next year. Right, right. And I've also uh, had people talk about how important it is to give it a big sunny field I grow mine in the shelter of a tree, and it's it's perfectly okay. I'm sure that it would be happier, and it would get taller if it was in the sun, but it isn't. Right. It, does, it gets maybe three hours of sunlight every day, and it I still get some beautiful flowers from it. I the, found elder growing in the woods in shadier spots, yeah. and it just sort of climbs its way up the trees that are next to it, using them as its support. Mm-hmm. And, it can grow to be 35 feet or more. It's Incredibly tall. how tall they can get. And if you're gardening with elderberry, it's very important to keep in mind, am I going to be harvesting these flowers and fruit? Because that plant can get very, very tall, and those flowers and fruit will become inaccessible just because they're so tall. It's true that it tends to droop after a little while, but if you're growing it for fruit and flowers, make sure that it's in a place where you can easily get a ladder in there. Don't put a whole bunch of other landscape plants around it to surround it for beauty and yet make it impossible to put a ladder in because you will definitely need that. And even the hooks that people use to grab on a pole, to grab onto the elder to bring it in, at a certain point, you can't even get your way in there because they are so yes. astonishingly tall. Yes. And then they just haunt you. Yeah, just look at those big, beautiful clumps. Beautiful. Yeah, they'll become big, huge canopies, and the clumps are up there. And you just can't access it, which is fine to leave some of those berries available for wildlife. It's very wildlife-friendly food. We don't have to take every little bit. Right. That's- in fact, I recommend highly leaving the higher clumps and flowers for the birds yes because it's such an important food for them flowers yeah it's you know it is and especially when you're dealing with a boundary sort of deal you want to be respectful right yeah we're not the only one on this planet i enjoy watching elderflower being pollinated by hummingbirds and different things like that that's beautiful to see and i've seen some of the little tiny chirpy birds in our area sit on the elder 
branches even in midwinter and pick off some of the now petrified yeah. elder berries and i'm sure that's sustaining to their system it's, it's good to have something to yep yeah and in fact just as the wild birds like to eat elder they i mean birds are more susceptible to flus and viruses than dogs and cats oh, for instance once they get a respiratory illness that's right. it for them but being able to leave those bit of berries out there for the wild ones for the wild mm-hmm. birds is it's important for their health as well yeah and our domesticated birds benefit from it as well bringing yeah. it in for you have a parrot that enjoys it as i understand and my yeah. chickens i'll throw that in to their mix the dried elder flower dried elder berries in the winter to make sure that their respiratory system is just as clean and healthy as my family's. Exactly, yeah. I, I Actually, I feed it to my dog as well. Even though dogs don't get the same viruses that we humans do, they are susceptible to various diseases, and I figure there's no reason not to give him, give my dogs, the same medicine. Fla- Flavonoid-rich yeah. medicine is good for everybody. Right. If you want to find out more recipes or you want to find out more about elderberry, We do have some information on the Practical Herbalist site. We have a lot of recipes on the site. And if you look in medicinal processing, you'll get a few more tips about how to make tinctures and syrups, etc., the things that we mentioned here. And we have an upcoming folio, particularly on elderberry, that you can get on Amazon, and we welcome you to read that. It's got a lot more advanced information, and there are some recipes that are in the folio that you will not find on our site. It's particularly for our folio readers. We keep that out special for them. If you have any tips that you enjoy about elderberry, we would be interested in reading those, and please send a message to us via our Facebook page, or you can send an email message to us uh, from our contact list. We have places to, to respond on the Practical Herbalist site as well there's lots of ways to contact us we're not shy and we'll be happy to take a look at what you're sending us and investigate it for ourselves and then maybe you'll hear your tip on the real herbalism radio podcast herbalism 101 herbalists use a variety of terms to describe the properties of herbs we discuss the ph what it stands for why it's important to can it as well as a healthy diet if you want the dirt on herbs, send your questions to herbalismradio.com slash herbalism101. We'll do our best to answer your questions in a future episode of Herbalism Radio. So today I'd like to talk about pH. Could you talk to me or explain to me a little bit about what that really means? Because that's one of those terms that gets thrown out a lot during canning season. Yes, and it's small p, large h, and it's... There's actually a bunch of different definitions for pH, but what we most often see is it's because it's uh, not an English term that we're making uh, abbreviations for. It's potential of hydrogen is what we generally accept as the initials. That if you have hydrogen ions in there, the amount of hydrogen ions will, according to the certain scale that's set up, starting from zero, actually, and then going up to approximately 14, then that will determine how acidic or alkaline your pH is. Which side of that scale would be the acid side of the scale, then? The zero through seven is considered acid, and seven through 14 is considered alkaline. My question for you, Candice, is how does pH relate to canning? 
when we're canning, what we want to do is prevent microorganisms from growing in our food. So when you're canning a food that's high acid, like tomatoes, the acidity of the environment inside the can will prevent the microorganisms from growing. You can use a low amount of heat for canning tomatoes. It's usually a water bath, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, whatever that is, Celsius, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. So you do that for 20 or 30 minutes, and it's going to create the environment that's safe. If you go for, if you're wanting to can a low-acid food like green beans, it doesn't have a lot of inherent pH, or the pH is higher, more toward the alkaline side. So what you need to do is drive up the temperature to create the safe environment inside the can. That's why we can at 10 pounds pressure for 25 minutes or 30 minutes, depending on exactly which food you're doing at the low, for the low-acid foods. There are available online and in some really good books like Putting Food By by <clears throat> Janet Green, Ruth Hertzberg, and Beatrice Vaughn. You can get tables that tell you which foods are high acid, which are low acid, and what the safe canning temperature and times are. That's so. one of my go-to books. I also love the extension service as it right. makes such good allowances for altitudes, like you said, and then the size right. of the thing that you're canning with. I know that makes a big difference. It'll make a difference for how long you can can it for. Does the difference between a pint size and a quart size can be significant usually, or insignificant? Usually it's only about a five-minute difference, and I've often, when I'm not sure or if I have a mix in there, I'll err on the side of longer just to be safe. But, yeah, you're right that those. it's important if you live at a different altitude. I live relatively close to sea level, so the standard times and, and sizes, that all works. If you're living at a higher altitude, it is important to look up what how to adjust. I've seen charts for that where they'll ask you to subtract or add time for canning as well. Exactly. So one of the things that pH, it's its not just for canning. It's also that's something that we have kind of shows up in everything, like our diet, for yes, instance. Yes, the American diet is very high in acid. We drink a lot of coffee, and then because it upsets our stomach, we'll add cream to it, which is a little more alkaline, but still it, cream and dairy is still acid. So we try to add that to mitigate it, and then we still get upset stomachs, or we need to add a little more alkaline foods to our diet in order to make it more pH balanced. In our system, we seem to do better with things that are closer to 7 as opposed to the 5s or the uh, 5.3, which is what a common American diet would be. Right, and when you don't have a balanced diet, when you're having a diet that's too acid, you'll start to find that your systems in your body break down, you're more susceptible to illnesses. Mm -hmm. Because you can't take as much of the nutrition from your food. Your body is working way too hard to deal with the acid content as opposed to what it should be doing, which is getting the minerals and vitamins and putting it into your bloodstream. So people end up, like me, with ulcers a lot or just stomach upset or esophagus problems. So those folks out there who want to make their diets a little bit less acid, you can do things like look online, I imagine, to mm -hmm. find foods that are particularly low in acid and try to balance your diet by using a little bit more of those low acid foods if you, for instance, love coffee and refuse to give it up. Right, so. exactly. And not a big surprise, most of the fast food that we so love is all very high acid. 
my guess is that you're going to be looking at a lot of vegetables, fresh vegetables right. and Lentils. probably and raw vegetables, I imagine. Correct. Thank you very much, Sue. If you would like to get more information on canning safely, try looking at Putting Food By by Janet Green, Ruth Hertzberg, and Beatrice Vaughn, or check out the National Center for Home Food Preservation online. Um, if you'd like to get the email or to get the links for that, take a look at the Real Herbalism Radio show notes for this episode. Now, herbs in the news. Candace and Sue discuss the natural news article about Ebola and the fallacies of their facts, as well as the responsibilities publishers bear in reporting herbal information accurately. We also discussed the importance of doing research and checking sources before trying any herbal remedy. Today, Sue, I would like to talk about an article that came out in the New York Daily News um, on August 11th entitled, Website Claims to Treat Ebola with Natural Remedy. It's referencing a natural news article that has since been taken down, thankfully. That's right. In which the author suggests or purports that you can make a homeopathic remedy using the Ebola virus. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) So I found out about the natural news article just an hour or two before they took it off the site. So I wasn't able to read it on its own. But the New New York Daily News preserved the article itself, and we were able to read off what they had said. And a lot of people were saying, for one thing, to claim that homeopathy is going to save you from Ebola, they're basically telling you it's like a vaccine. It's going to prevent Ebola, which I don't know homeopathy as ever saying anything like that. There isn't any literature talking about, even in the more traditional homeopathic medicine, about saving you from tropical diseases. It's all about dealing with some of the symptoms, That's and it's from a plant base. Having looked at what was actually in that article, and I'm using the word article very loosely from Natural News, they are asking people to ask someone to spit or collect blood from an Ebola victim, put it into water, then turn it into your own homeopathic remedy. And here's the way you're going to do that. You're going to take the mucus, and this is Ebola is spread by bodily fluids. You put it into water, and then you rinse it out and dump the water. That's unconscionable, for one thing. That's how diseases are spread. Then you take more water, and you keep diluting it and diluting it until you turn it into supposedly a homeopathic remedy made from a virus, made from bodily fluids, which is not traditional homeopathy, for one thing. But you've just figured out a way to spread Ebola into your community, not only through your own body, but by dumping that water. That is, as I've said before, unconscionable. That's how diseases are spread, and it shocks me that there isn't an editor in Natural News that would look at that and say, that that is against everything we believe in. That's not actual news. That's just somebody making stuff up. Right. It shocks yeah. me. Yeah, to me that news article seemed like it was ridiculous and Ignorant frank. on every frame. And I was actually, I read the, the New York Daily News article story on it, and I was frustrated that they repeated the a lot of that information, which really just spread it like a virus further. <laughs> right. And I thought that's also irresponsible. I get frustrated with our media for not 
taking the time to check their sources and make sure their information is accurate. And then when they're calling out another publisher, the natural news site, for doing being irresponsible, wrong, being irresponsible, they turn around and republish the same irresponsible information. Yeah, word for word. Word for word, they, exactly. And I understand they want to have the quotation in there, but they don't need to have the entire supposed process for turning a virus, which is infinitesimally small, as if you're going, as if you're going to dilute a virus. That's right. not the way it works. Right. Our vaccines are weakened viruses, not diluted ones, and homeopathy has nothing to do with viruses at all. It's right. It's about di- using plant constituents at a lighter um, diluted plant constituents. Yep. constituents. Yep. And Natural News has uh, another article that came out last year um, about this time. I'm going to take a look at the date on it because it's right up here. It was in April 21st. April seems to be a fabulous time to put out um, lies on the naturalnews.com source. And they have things for bioterrorism preparedness, uh, how to deal with anthrax, smallpox, plague, botulism, using homeopathic remedies. In this case, although I have some issues with that particular article, at least they're talking about using actual homeopathic remedies to treat the symptoms. They're not saying that this is a a prevention for getting the plague or prevention for getting smallpox. They're at least... Someone knows something about homeopathy. Whether you believe in homeopathy or not, irrelevant. At least they're addressing actual concerns and the principles of homeopathy. Right. Yeah, I find myself frustrated with organizations that publish information that is erroneous to the extreme like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. It's interesting to speculate about what could we do to help ourselves, but just to write something up and say, and this is fact now, because I thought of it myself. It's it's completely irresponsible. That's called yellow journalism. Right, and outside of the danger that people will actually try these things and the danger that they will manage to spread terrifying diseases like Ebola all mm-hmm. over the place, I find myself as a herbalist who doesn't always want to follow regulations really frightened by this. I don't mm-hmm. want to see our government starting to crack down and regulate herbs and herbalism the way that you know it has other governments have in the past i want herbalism to remain in the hands of the people and that means we as the people need to be responsible right and those of us who publish information need to be responsible but in secondarily those of us who are looking up and looking for information need to be responsible Mm -hmm. we need to be responsible for our health and look for more than one source for the different remedies that we want to try. If someone were to contract a disease like this or have a fear they've contracted a disease like this, the first thing they need to do is get professional help immediately. Right. That's the most responsible way of dealing with that because Ebola spreads like wildfire. It's got a high mortality rate. The low end of it is in the 40% mortality rate. The high end of it, unfortunately, is 90%. And if we get that in our society, of course, it's going to be horrible. What we're seeing, unfortunately, in the nations in Africa that are contracting it is people in smaller populations are using some of these myths that, for instance, what we're talking about with the homeopathy, people are saying, if I bathe in salt water and drink salt water, I will be immune to Ebola. And that's not true. People are dying because they're drinking salt water and it's killing them. Right. So those are the kind of myths that you have to practice 
really good vigilance with. Take a look, do your research, find out what's real. And just because somebody puts it in print doesn't mean it's science, doesn't mean it's fact, and doesn't mean it's not dangerous. That is true. The bottom line is do your homework before you try any remedy, even the ones that we advocate on our site. Do Mm -hmm. your homework. You are the one who owns the power to make common sense decisions about your own health care. Yep. Use that wisely. Very true. Yeah. Intelligence and common sense are some of the best medicinal values out there. Yes. Listen to your common sense. Listen to your intuition. Own your power. Don't just do it because some supposed authority says you can't. Thank you for listening to show number three of Real Herbalism Radio. Your hosts have been Candace Hunter and Susier Lupe. To find more information and recipes from today's show, or to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at realherbalismradio.com. Feeling social, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thepracticalherbalist. Don't forget to look up our ebooks and herbal folios at amazon.com. Use the search terms practical herbalist. This show is sponsored by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of high-quality organic, bulk herbs, gourmet spices, loose leaf teas, essential oils, herbal extracts, and natural body care ingredients. Visit them at mountainroseherbs.com. If you would like to sponsor Real Herbalism Radio, just contact us through our website at realherbalismradio.com slash contact. Till next time, this is Patrick with Real Herbalism Radio and practicalherbalist.com.